Hi there everyone, it's A Squared here again, the atypical anaesthetist. And tonight we've got a interesting conversation with a good friend, uh, a fellow atypical in a certain way, uh, enthusiast, uh, Matteo Doni, um, f- with whom we have worked, uh, with whom I've worked a couple of times in the past. Um, and it should be an interesting conversation on tech, politics, and what exactly does it mean to be the chief pixel enthusiast. Hope you enjoy. Good afternoon, listeners. A Squared here, the atypical anaesthetist. And I have with me today a very special guest, a friend of mine, someone, in fact, I've known for, I was calculating this out, um, almost five years from our time when we used to uh, spar on Cool Smartphone and their podcast, uh, Matteo Doni. Great, Majid. Thank you for having me on your podcast. So, Matteo. I understand you're atypical too. That's a very kind way of saying that I'm a weirdo. <laughs> Please do go ahead. Yes, well, um, it's, it's very difficult to define what is typical, what is atypical. But yes, I come from a, let's say, different walk of life in the sense that I have two parents who were from two different countries. Uh, and I was born in a third country and travelled around quite a lot when I was a child. And I finished my schooling in Italy and then moved to Scotland after that and settled down here. So you could say that I've um, I've been around a bit. I, it, I'm not as much as many others in the world, but I have been in, exposed to different cultures, different uh, realities uh, in time. And I consider myself to be a pretty open person uh, when it comes to cultures, languages, food, and uh, more importantly, technology. I'm a massive geek. I somehow stumbled into the technology industry, and some people think they know what, they they think that I know something about it, and consider me a a source of information. Well, for me, you're a a source of information. Interesting, actually. Um... Where were your formative years? I have I always have this theory that you your where you spend your teenage to late teen years is where you kind of ultimately identify yourself to be from. So, for example, for my ex- example, yes, I've got an Indian background. Yes, I was born in Wales, but I spent most of that formative period in the Midlands, and so I'm always thought of myself as a Brummie. So even when I used to work in other parts of the country, I would always be known as the Brummie. Um, is that a similar kind of uh, thing for you? I would say um, probably not for me. So for a bit more context, my parents uh, were moving around when I was a kid uh, throughout various countries in the Middle East and uh, Greece. Uh, and I went to British embassy schools whilst uh, that was happening. And when I was 10, we moved to Italy, uh, back to Milan. And when we did that, I then went into the Italian school system, and that's where I spent my formative years. But because my schooling went from a British schooling one to an Italian one, 
um, especially at the beginning, uh, I was marked as the different one. I was uh, marked as the English or, or Scottish person. And so I think that may have stuck with me because uh, I also ended up uh, settling down in the UK, specifically in Edinburgh, uh, probably because I culturally have more of an identification with the UK. Uh, I, f I think that maybe uh, I had been sufficiently ingrained by the British Embassy school system to uh, then uh, be culturally more aligned with the UK way of life and the UK lifestyle. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that that does that does make sense. It's very interesting. This you know sense of belonging and where you're from. I find that, uh, for me personally, I find that in many parts of the UK, I feel that I'm not British enough to be a Brit, but I'm not Indian enough to be an Indian. Um. So, for example, when I go over to India. I find that it's very, very obvious to people. It's less so now with the bigger middle classes that are coming up, that are more westernized. But in the early days anyway, it was very obvious that I was not from, you know, um, from there. Yet at the same time when I'm over here, uh, I, you know, obviously there's a, a physical barrier, i.e. I'm brown. Um, but in the more multicultural kind of spaces, so the, the, the larger cities... I think that's kind of where I am, you know, where you can be a couple of different identities and you can still be, you know, you can be a bit atypical and you can still be, have a sense of belonging, if you understand what I mean, you know, um, because all of us have multiple identities. Uh, very few of us are, uh, you know, um, how should we say, ethnically pure or linguistically pure or whatever. I remember find, it was quite funny, actually. I saw some um, documentary program about your genes. You know, people, uh, it wasn't who do you think you are, but it was something similar to that. When people would give swaps and they would check the uh, your genetic uh, code. And they had this girl who was an English nationalist. Um, you know, she said she was very passionate about how um, England should be separate from the from Wales, Scotland and whatever, more of a... Uh, I think the de I think the party was called in English Democrat. I think anyway, turned out that she was German, and uh, she was she just went into a state of cognitive dissonance because she just couldn't kind of, you know, um, kind of. But no, but I but I've lived here all my entire life and this that and the other and my parents and we're from the ground and we don't want any foreigners here and it's like yeah but you're German. Um. Yeah. No, I, 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 I'm completely aware of that. I mean, the the whole thing about. Ethnically pure people is uh, is maybe one of the biggest cases of hate, fake news in the history of humanity, and it's nothing new. It's something that's been going around for thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, even Hitler's version of the Aryan race um, is a bit odd to anyone who studies uh, classics because they'd be looking back at Iran two thousand years ago, saying, "Wait, why is he identifying these uh, these people of barbarian stock?" with a different race of people in Iran in the 2,000 years ago. It was a bit weird at the time, but, uh, you know, fake news and all that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yes, this whole thing is strange. What I would like to ask of you, uh, Majid, obviously you said that you were considered the a bit of a, an outsider. Have you changed, have you noticed uh, the culture in the UK changing, even in your lifetime, compared to when you were a kid to now? Have you seen that shifting from 
you being an outsider to that being much less of an issue? I've actually seen a little bit of a bell curve. I've seen um, from a time of, say, the 80s and early 90s where, you know, there was a lot more racism. I grew up in a predominantly white town um, and, you know, you did feel a lot like an outsider. Um, however, I was forced to integrate in a sense because I was, you know, I was the only Asian in the village, just to nick a uh, little Britain line. Um so that's, a, that's a Welsh accent. Aye, aye, it is indeed. So, therefore, um, I did notice it then. The best period I found was the late 90s to the early 2000s. At that point, you know, um, maybe it was because of the political milieu that we were in. You know, things can only get better. New Labour government. You know, everything was uh, multiculturalism was pushed. It was it, it was a it was a good time to be British, cool Britannia, you know, and that's when I felt really kind of you know comfortable in my skin. The early two thousands and the emergence of Al Qaeda and Islamic State have completely wiped away those gains that were made. Um, whether that's been due to the people themselves, whether that's been due to the response of people towards it, whether that's been due to people who are never really comfortable with the multicultural paradigm and, you know, uh, preferred their white uh, English uh, greens and, you know, cricket on Sunday, beer, warm beer in the afternoon, nostalgia for the 1950s. I don't know. But it's probably a combination of things. And then, of course, we had the financial crash. Um, and then, you know, this real kind of uh, vitriol that the, the press pushed towards immigration, uh, specifically uh, European immigration. Um, you know, I often used to talk about, uh, with my friends, about the idea of Schrodinger's immigrant. You're, you're, you're familiar with the Schrodinger's cat thing of, is the cat in the box alive or dead? Well, until you open it, you don't know. So it can be, you have equal possibility of being alive and dead. And I used to feel that people were kind of thinking of Schrodinger's immigrant. You know, he simultaneously comes and takes your job and sits on his ass and takes benefits. So um, I found it since that time to become a little bit more uh, frosty. Um, it's not usual in the workplace in the way that it was before. It's not um, said out loud. But then when we see these kind of movements that have arisen around the world, right wing populists, I think they're tapping into that. So, as I said, I'm I unfortunately kind of feel we're back where we started. You know, I even saw and I can't believe this is the first time in so many years that I've actually seen it. I saw a, uh, I mean, I know you see a lot of rubbish on Twitter, but I saw something on Twitter uh, talking about um, the NHS surcharge um, and um, things like this uh, for overseas NHS staff. And somebody had written in the reply, why can't we just repatriate them? And I thought, I've not heard that word, the idea of visible ethnic minorities being repatriated from this country to yeah. allegedly where we've come from. I haven't heard that but for is 20 that, years. Is, is that argument specifically about ethnic minorities or just people who are from outside the EU? 
Um, I, I have friends who are from the US. They're extremely high-paid bankers who are probably paying a large proportion of the UK's um, income tax who went to the NHS for a medical thing and were charged the £400. Obviously, to them, it's not a very big issue, but they were uh, a bit surprised that they're paying so much in income tax Yet uh, they in the UK, yet they have to pay to use the NHS. So I think it's across the board. It's uh, obviously it's been turned into a political and in this case race issue. Uh, but I think this is more of a, a fundamental administrative uh, uh, issue. I mean, I mean, it, it is administrative issue because I I've always said that whenever people talk about. Oh, all these immigrants came in and they flooded our market and we had we couldn't get jobs and there was no schools and no this, that and the other. I've lived through that period. I've lived through a period where there was mass immigration coming in. And the, and the, I always used to say the problem is not that the fact that there are people wanting to come live here from wherever they want to come or whatever skills that they want to bring. It's the lack of the government uh, take uh, making steps to accommodate those people. I live in uh, the Midlands now and the area in the Midlands now that I live in has seen its population probably increase by 50% due to immigration over the last 15 years. Still has the same number of schools, still has the same number of doctors. So, you know, if you're not going to account for these people, it's admi- this is administration. This is administration. You're, the government ha- is not managing the people that it has. Um, and I always thought that the blame should be put more on there, but that's um, obviously the politicians don't like that, and so the blame has to be put somewhere else. Anyway, um, uh, would you do you kind of see where I'm coming from on that? totally see where you're coming from and i think the fundamental issue here is the form of democracy the uk has uh, much the same as the rest of the western world where the electoral horizons that the politicians are operating on and the majority of the administration staff is a four-year one Um, as you said uh, the population of the midlands has gone up 15 percent, but that's over a longer period of time and ultimately, the horizon, the difference in horizons between the government administering something where they have to do it within four years or not be re-elected, it's not their hot potato anymore, and uh, it being uh, more of an issue later is something that is a fundamental problem with Western democracy as we know it. Uh, that's le- much less of an issue in a place like China where they're, uh, they're sort of plan is between 25 and 50 years long because they have a much longer game plan and they plan for things they don't let things happen unless they're ready for them yeah i mean there's i mean there's a lot to be said for the idea of i mean obviously i'm not advocating dictatorship and totalitarianism um but you know there's a lot to be said for the idea of the uh, benevolent dictator, if you know what I mean. You know, as somebody who has the job for a significant period of time and doesn't have to worry about re-election, you know, having someone, um, maybe an elected president, but the term is 10 years, for example. And whilst the, the parliament uh, or whatever is uh, chosen at uh, more frequent intervals to... And to reflect the society as it is and as it's changing therefore you still have somebody who has who's there for a while um i mean i mean to be honest most prime ministers 
you know, most of them spend, uh, you know, get two terms anyway, if you think about it. Um, in, in the UK, in yes, the UK, if you look at if you look at a place like Italy, they've had more governments than years since the Second World War because of the extreme democracy they have. They have proportional representation, yeah. and uh, so that sort of situ- uh, that that sort of more direct democracy, which you could call it that way. Uh, brings its own problems with it. Yes, no, I mean, I and agree. I, I mean, I mean the, 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 a phase of that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that the country that has the most uh, polit- uh, proportional representation is Israel. And Israel has spent, it has pure proportional representation. There's no seats. The whole country is just one seat. You just, you know, everything's by proportion. And they've had three elections in the last 18 months. And they've only now managed to get a uh, a prime minister. Uh, and a cabinet and whatever. So, uh, me, what I was trying to say is that I think that those two aspects of executive governance and representative uh, democracy should be kind of separated out slightly. You know, you vote in a president in for 10 years, you know, on his ticket, on his thing, in 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 with his vision, and then you do your... Uh, so, I could say like a semi-presidential system like France to an extent. Um, you, you then vote for your uh, political representative... Pre- political representatives every four five years and you know those up and down and then if you even if you go first past the post or you got proportional representation you still have a line of continuity going down i don't know um i think uh i think we could wax lyrical for a long time on that and to be this honest is rather, I mean, this, this is a really good point um but then again uh, think of how Obviously, at the moment, you're unhappy with the current form of government in the UK. You're unhappy with our prime minister, no doubt. Uh, how unhappy would you be for 10 years if that current uh, prime minister were in charge for 10 years? You'd become even more disillusioned and even more unhappy. So that's the problem with democracy. Not everyone gets what they want. And it's all about compromise and deciding to care about it enough but not too much, and to think about yourself, as we were saying just before the show. True, uh, true. Um, I'd just like to just slightly caveat that with saying that if you vote, uh, if you're doing a direct vote, you know, and if you're then, you, and it's say between, between two people, right? Um, and if, and I'm, I, I know which what this is going to allude to, but if, you know, it, it, it comes out as a majority in one uh, for one person and not a majority for the other, you know, then that at least does give you some leg to stand on to say, well, uh, look, and, I'm, and obviously the illusion I'm giving to is the Brexit referendum. I am was a Remainer. I know you were a Lever. Um, I, no, I was actually a Remainer at the time. OK. But the more things went on and the more from an economic standpoint, I saw the European Union using the tactics that originally caused the Brexit vote and the unhappiness there, I actually transitioned to being a pro-leave and believing that the UK can do better out with the economic cartel that is the European Union. And I'm looking at this from a, a, a standpoint of uh, from where my parents live and where I still have the right to vote, where people are extremely unhappy with the European Union but are completely tied in because they not only have their membership of the European Union, 
they're tied in by the currency. Mm -hmm. They do not have the Italian lira anymore. They don't have a currency to devalue as an economic tool to foster a recovery. And when Italy's economy is out of sync with France and Germany, for example, they go into an early recession, uh, they essentially end up in a recession spiral and can't get out because they don't have the tools to get out. And France and Germany don't want to lose out on their current position. So countries like Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal um, have a lot of very deep unhappiness with the European Union at this point. And because they're no longer the small players within the European Union that need desperately need the support, uh, they don't get the support they need coming I, out of this. Um, I... I can agree with you. Um, I don't really want to uh, rerun the politics of the Brexit referendum again and again. I think, you know, uh, most sane people have accepted that's what it was. It is what it is. We have left and now it's time to move on. Um, yes, that's, but, that's, that's the responsible thing to do. Yeah. But what, what, since that, since we have come to terms with this, if you just look at how uh, the Republic of Ireland have been treated, um, whilst the negotiations were on, and there was a level of uncertainty with uh, Theresa May's government. Uh, we had the situation where Ireland was backed by the European Union, and where a strong there was a strong point about the Northern Irish backstop. Once there was a clear democratic intent from the United Kingdom with the last election, uh, the European Union have essentially dumped Ireland. Ireland are on their own during the Brexit negotiations, and I think that's despicable. Um, the, the, they, they were essentially using Ireland in a pawn in this uh, conversation. And Leo Varadkar not only lost his own internal election, but was dumped by his closest allies and will probably have to make do with whatever the European Union tells the Republic uh, once the, the deal is closed. Um, again, I would agree. I have no sympathy personally for the European Union as a project. My uh, my reservations were mainly on the economic and political clout that I felt that we gained by, by being in the European Union. Um, but what, what I'm trying to say is that um, if even in that scenario where you've got a slim majority of 52 to 48%, yeah, then... That is still a majority of people, and that cannot be denied. That it cannot be denied. You know, no, however hardcore Remainer you want to be, you can't deny that more people voted for the other guy than you. The problem we have in at the moment with our first past the post Westminster system for governance is that the prime minister is the leader of the largest party and the largest party can get into power with around 35% of the vote. So therefore 35% of the vote going to the party of the man, you might not even like the man, but you might like the party or you might be vice versa. Um, it was definitely vice versa this time around when it came to labor. I know a lot of labor people who didn't like Jeremy Corbyn and therefore, therefore didn't vote labor. Um, so do you see how that is even less representative? Because now you've got maybe 35% of the people have voted Boris Johnson or 40%, you know, if we be generous. 
you know. The issue here is the issue is that the UK is a much more direct and simple system than, say, a complex proportional representation system where ultimately you have even less say in who gets elected as your member of parliament representing you on the parliament. In the UK, you have a clear system of constituencies where you elect a representative to, re elect, to represent you. You have a choice of maybe three, four different candidates from three, four different parties. You're representing not, you're electing not your prime minister, you're electing someone to represent you in parliament. And the majority of UK MPs do their job. Their primary focus is serving their constituents. Now, that then translates into the party system in the UK, which elects a prime minister. And one of the reasons the UK has had some relatively stable governance since the Second World War and before is the fact that then that gives a clear majority system to the, to, to the UK government. Whereas in a proportional representation system, you're not responsible of choosing who your candidate is. You're choosing a party based solely on the manifesto. And depending on what the party rankings are, you choose they, they choose who is going to represent you. But their primary focus is not on the constituents that elected their um, their uh, their their representative or their party. It's to the party. So it's a different dynamic. I would say the UK has benefited from a level of stability when someone gets elected they're usually elected for the term of the parliament the issue is that in the last few years with a change in information in some social change that then broke down as we saw in a, in a case of a couple of hung parliaments over the last 20 years it's a it's a complicated issue but i would say the uk is still a better place than having uh hard direct democracy because to get to two candidates you still need to have some form of selection how do people get into the position of being elected uh, it, it's it's not a simple issue and even if you look at the u.s where they do have a direct democracy direct election of two representatives uh, that goes through a selection process and a lot of people get burnt very very unhappy if we look at the last U.S. Elect presidential election where Donald Trump was elected, the cause, partial cause of that was the disillusionment some of Bernie Sanders' uh, voters uh, dis who decided not to vote for Hillary Clinton and handed the victory to Donald Trump. It's, it's Conceptually, it's a great idea, direct election of uh, your, your supreme leader. But in practice, there's always so many interests at, at, at hand and so much guiding of those interests that the outcome is rarely actually democratic. Mm. As, uh, I, I see where you're coming from. Um, if I had to invent a system, personally, then the system that I would invent would be that you'd have a president who was elected for 10 years, uh, uh, of which there is a selection process to get to, but there would be two candidates at the end of the day. All right. And um, they have to win by an absolute majority. Um, rather than, uh, okay, maybe more than that. They have to have at least two thirds. That's what I would say. Um, and you're, you would then have two houses underneath 
him to Houses of Parliament, you know, a House of Lords-esque uh, Parliament and a House of Commons-esque com uh, Parliament. A House of Commons, which is directly voted first past the post for each constituent, uh, so that the MP can represent the constituent, uh, the constituents in his constituency, and the second chamber is what the makeup would be if it had been proportional representation. So therefore, you get this idea that even you know my vote doesn't mean and. You know where it's uh, some people who, for example, in very strong Labour seats, very strong Conservative seats say, well, my vote doesn't matter. I want to vote for X party. It makes no difference. You know, this this party will always get in. Well, no, actually, your vote does make a difference because at least in the, uh, in the other chamber, there is your vote will be uh, registered, as it were. You know, your views will still be somehow come through there. Uh, that's just my personal thing. Unfortunately, I'm not ruler of the world. Hell, I'm not even ruler of my house. And in fact, at this moment in time, I'm not even a ruler of my Wi-Fi. So, uh, <laughs> just, just clarify that Wi-Fi, as in your wireless connectivity to the internet. Yeah, so my wireless connectivity to the internet, because we now have so many devices in our house that, at you know, we have our own slowdowns during the day. So we get a slowdown about now because this is the time when my son decides PS4 and uh, Call of Duty is the time of the hour, you know. And then um, it then gets uh, quickens up again a bit later on when, you know, it's dinner time and things like that. So I've actually, uh, so ironically, even though I've actually got a fibre connection, I'm actually doing this uh, tethered to my uh, uh, device because I want to have a reliable connection. So you're tethered to your mobile device. Yeah, I am, yeah. How Excellent. weird is that? So, who who holds the admin password to the to your router? I do. But okay then. But you know, um, when you have two teenage boys, um, it's difficult to police, and when you have a uh, a young daughter who, thanks to coronavirus, I had to buy a device for, so she could get her online schooling. And is now sat there watching Twitch and uh, YouTube uh, game playing. Um, I find that I'm the one with the slow internet. And I have to actually just rely on my mobile signal. So if I want to watch Netflix or something, you can forget it. Uh, to, be well, fair, to be fair, my fibre isn't too... Provider? Pardon? Who's your internet service provider? Uh, mine is uh, Now TV. I would love to have Virgin, but Virgin do not serve my area. I used to have Virgin That's before. Um, I wondered whether getting a mesh router would help, actually. That's a good question. What do you reckon? Um, I, I don't know. So mesh routers are a bit of a hit and miss. So I think your, your issue potentially is network forming. And as holder of the admin password to your router, you should be able to go into the settings and change the allocation of bandwidth, both upload and download, to each device so that it's split evenly if needed. Mm, okay. So, so most routers have that functionality, whether they're from your ISP or you're using a third-party one. And that's something that may help, especially if there's someone playing the PS4 and is downloading a large game to play at a later point. The gameplay itself on a, on a con games console, whether it's PlayStation, Xbox, or Wii, uh, or uh, what's the new one, Nintendo Switch, yeah. uh, they, they, the gameplay itself doesn't use a lot of bandwidth. 
what the issue is is when you download massive updates. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, game, and games. so I'd say it's it's all down to network forming. Uh, mesh networking will help your coverage in the house. So how depending on how far away from your router you are. But I think your your issue sounds like it's more uh, to do with the coverage. So I'm. This is, I think, even greater case for uh, a world emperor who will dictate that everyone <laughs> has uh, fiber cable to their house rather than to the cabinet, and then copper wire from there. This is a part of long term planning. I'm in the lucky position where I chose a house, uh, or in this case, an apartment, on in a part of town where I specifically chose it because I had the choice between two ISPs. And lo and behold, those two ISPs became two, two and a half because BT started offering fiber to the premises. Mm-hmm. So Candice and I are in a lucky position where we have Virgin Media, so Doxis cable internet, so fiber optic to the cabinet and then coaxial cable to our apartment, which does cable TV and internet, so it's 350 meg internet, 35 upload. Oh, Lord. And that's... Okay. The, that's the basic home connection. Um, in the last year or so, I've been working uh, from home a lot. Yep, like we all have. And uh, the tech travel geeks started taking off, and we needed a bit more bandwidth to upload 4K video. We've uh, it really makes a difference when you're dealing with large files, collaborating online on tooling, and then uploading them to YouTube. So uh, I have a fiber to the premises connection with uh, BT. It's gigabit down, it's 120 megabits up. I'm very happy. But I then have respectively two mesh networks to make sure both connections are even across the apartment because it's a very long uh, place. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the lucky position where I did that, but it took a bit of foresight three years ago when we purchased the place and uh, being lucky that we were part of the rollout of the fiber to the premises. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, no, that is very lucky. I remember speaking to one, another one of my uh, colleagues, who's also similarly tech savvy, and he told me, uh, uh, "Did you not check the Wi-Fi uh, before you, you know, bought the the house?" And I said, "Well, I kind of had to think about other things as well, as just the Wi-Fi, you know." Um, I mean, I with my fiber, I get uh, thirty six, um, which is about the same as what I get with LTE, actually. Um, 5G has rolled out in my area and one of my sims is an EE sim so I am getting 5G in where I actually live it's only uh, I'm only getting about again about 35 but if outside my hospital where I work outside not inside outside I've hit uh, 200 uh, megabits um easily uh with that oh, wow. 5g yeah so um and what um, 5g device are you using that on so the only 5g device i have is a samsung galaxy s10 uh s10 5g which is basically an s10 plus with a 5 with 5g although actually even that's not correct it's actually more like if you were thinking of this year's range of s20 20 plus and 20 ultra it was last year's Ultra because it is, it's not just the S10 Plus with 5G. It has, for example, an extra camera, slightly larger. You know, um, it ha- it comes with 256 base storage. 
um and so and so that's the um uh device that i'm i'm using 5g on that's what i'm tethering Excellent. to that's, that's really good um we're in the position where we do we're not covered by 5g uh, at the moment mm-hmm. and it will be a while before we are i do have a 5g device uh, my three sim is automatically enabled for 5g but I haven't been able to use it throughout lockdown. I'm currently reviewing the Huawei P40, mm-hmm. but I haven't had the chance to try the 5G, which is extremely frustrating. But I'm doing my best to stay at home and avoid uh, contact with the outside world. Cool. Well, we'll get to that P40, actually. But before we get to that, right, You exactly how many phones and portable devices do you have? So, um... I will premise this with, um, technically I do not own many of them, they are review devices, okay. others I have purchased myself. So on my desk and the unit above me, I have 34 phones at the moment. Okay, so let, can I just butt in there? 12 tablets. Can I just butt in there slightly and say, apart from your review devices, uh, how many have you got? Because I want to get an idea of what, you know, what kind of technology you actually have and you actually use, rather than that which we are uh, reviewing for the Tech Tower Travel Geeks or Twit, uh, all about Android, etc. I want to get an idea of what, how many you have and you use. Well, all of them. Um, so I make a point of using a device for their two-year life cycle and experiencing what the product life cycle is like what the software experience and updates are like, and if they're as reliable as most companies claim they are. So I do use them all. Uh, Obviously, uh, some services are tied directly to your phone number, and I have uh, quite a few active SIM cards. So I use quite a few, but I'm still personally using a Huawei P30 Pro, so last year's uh, Huawei flagship, uh, uh, as my main device. My second most used device at the moment is the Huawei P40, uh, the the standard version. I also use an iPhone 11. Uh, I also use the Google Pixel 4 XL. I also use uh, Xiaomi Redmi Note 9S. And in the tablet space, I'm using uh, uh, Amazon Fire devices. I've pretty much got one in each room of that house and pick it up if and when I need it. Uh, But to be honest, during lockdown, that's become much less of an issue because I'm sitting at my desk, which is about three meters away from the bedroom uh, in the spare room. And in the living room, we have a TV with connected to the the internet. But when I'm working, I will have Disney Plus or Netflix on in the background on a six-year-old Amazon Fire tablet, which is uh, on a stand next to my desk. Okay, so the phones that you have, do you have specific use cases for them? I mean, I, I would gather, I would guess, for example, the Pixel, you know, is the camera king-ish? No, um, the, I'm, I was very disappointed that with the Pixel 4 XL last year. Oh, really? Um, in day-to-day use, uh, it came up short against the Huawei P30 Pro. Uh, the main thing being when traveling, it didn't have a wide-angle lens. That was extremely frustrating because the Pixel 4 XL's uh, night mode is great, but it's pretty much on par with the Huawei P30 Pro. 
and the Huawei P30 Pro has the option to switch to wide angle. So when you're in a city like Singapore and you're, you're on a balcony looking at this amazing skyline, with the Pixel 4 XL, you're only getting a little stamp worth of it. Whereas with the with a device like the Huawei P30 Pro or anyone with a wide-angle lens, you're getting a much wider image. So, yeah, I've got a, a lot of devices on the go. I would say the Pixel 4 XL at this point is just a device I check for monthly updates and feature updates from the Pixel lineup. Okay. But as a buyer, someone who actually bought this device, I'm very disappointed. I'm not sure I will be getting... Uh, a Pixel 5XL or whatever they decide to call it in autumn. Okay. Um, it's actually quite interesting what you say about Pixels because I also have been disappointed whenever I've had a Pixel device. I had a Pixel 2XL and uh, I tired of it very quickly. I was not impressed with the so-called uh you know google experience um you know uh, android as google has intended it experience um i i thought oxygen os did you know was was far better at giving a clean stock uh, interface uh, the, and the camera yeah it was good I'm not denying that but i did, i didn't think it was a bit overrated um i didn't think it was as good as the way that it was uh, portrayed. And the phone that I got after that, which is the OnePlus 6, I think took better photos. Person, that, That's personally, and obviously everybody has a different style and there's different photos that you're taking indoors, outdoors and whatever. Leads me to the kind of idea that, and which has been mooted around in other tech podcasts as well, um, that Google really can't do hardware very well. You know, it there's more... I mean, for every Chromebook Pixel or Pixelbook Go or Pixel 3a, there's a Pixel 3 XL with that ridiculous notch or a Pixel 4 with um, very low, uh, bad uh, battery quality or a Pixel Slate, which was, it was kind of like the bastard child of Chrome and Android. And neither wanted anything to do with it, and rather it's be sent to a workhouse somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So Google, obviously, it's 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 a cultural issue. Google is not a hardware company as part of its DNA, and they're getting there. But hardware, when you start up as a company, you hire the right people, you have the right processes to build product pipelines, and Google very much came as well as innovating in the space came from a. Uh, build fast, innovate fast, iterate fast, and you can do that in software. Uh, doing it in hardware is much more difficult because you're hit with a very hard uh, situation where the hardware doesn't change after a certain point and everything else has to be done in software. Uh, they have been getting better at it over years, but it's, it's not something that uh, has come easy to them. So as someone who has had... Uh, essentially had uh, a Nexus or Pixel device since the since the Samsung made Nexus S. Oh, I had that so, phone. I had that phone. I loved that phone. 
So I, I never got my hands on a Nexus One. I had the HTC Desire, the one with the AMOLED screen, which was essentially the same one, but with an optical uh, fingerprint yeah. tracking. Yeah. I had the the HTC Desire, and then went to the Nexus S, and I've had a Nexus or Pixel device since then. So Google's own uh, sanctioned or Google's own what good looks like of the smartphone world, and have seen it progress as a lineup. The big change from Nexus to uh, to to Pixel was the fundamental product thing, where it used to be that Google had the manufacturers come to them and pitch them the hardware. They would then make the software for the device, and that was the probably Google's limitation in the space, especially when it came to cameras and what the AI could do and so forth. And Google has always treated the Nexus and uh, Pixel lineup as a bit of an experiment to see what they could do. Let's really push things out and see what happens, and then see how that gets taken on by everyone else in the in the Android open source uh, open handset alliance. And with the Pixel lineup, it was the other way around. They had end to end product development going forward, and it not- it was noticeable with the first generation Pixel. Um, I picked one up in 2016, and I was pleasantly surprised by that product. It was a good product. It was a good phone. That was the original Pixel XL. I then had the Pixel 2 XL, which uh, was a good phone. I think it was a it was a great phone uh, overall. The only issue was the battery life. The Pixel 3 XL, yes, it had an ugly notch, but I like to think of myself as someone who focuses on function over form, and I was happy with that notch. It wasn't really a big issue because I had lots of advantages in the space of selfies. It gave me wide-angle selfies that no phone had done before, which was great. And I think that that function really made me look over the fact that it had a bathtub-shaped notch in the middle of the screen. So I was happy with that. And I would say the Pixel 3 XL was a great all-round device after three months because they had to do some software updates to optimize battery life. At the beginning, it was terrible, uh, but then they, they fixed that uh, with software updates. With the Pixel 4 XL, um, I got it in, in autumn last year. I was, I was okay with it at the beginning, but in those key experiences whilst traveling whilst taking pictures uh, and needing a device to do something it fell short that was why that's the cause of why i'm disappointed with it Um, it's a great phone if taken in isolation but the overall experience of what i've come to expect seeing what other providers are are provide are are giving in terms of an overall experience is uh, changing as everyone should be as the technology progresses so your expectations uh, for the products change i have an expectation that a flagship phone that costs almost a thousand pounds should be able to take a wide angle picture at this point in time in the same way that i have an expectation that it has at least usb type c charging not uh, not uh, micro usb and so forth Etc. I, I I see where you're coming from. That that thousand pounds has to be worth something. You know, it can't be just because 
of inflation, you know, in, in a sense, you know, there's been a lot yeah, of... It can't it, fall short in the key fundamentals that I needed to, 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 to complete, the fundamental tasks I needed to complete. Well, you see, I would actually go one step further. And I would say that if you are spending... So I recently bought a new laptop. We'll get to this uh, properly later. But, you know, I've recently bought a new laptop. And when you're looking at buying, you know, you're spending similar amounts of money as you would for phones. And you're looking at and you're seeing what processor and what this and what that and what can you do. And you think of the use case you're going to be using it for and this, that and the other. It really made me wonder, and it's something that I've seen also again on um, uh, overall uh, across social media and the internet, that... If you're spending a grand on a computer and you're expecting it to do X, Y, Z, why are you expecting, why are you buying a computer, uh, a, a mobile computer, i.e. A, a smartphone for the same amount of money and yet doing things that a budget device, which cost 150, 200 quid, would do more than adequately? So not only should you be able to be able to nail the smartphone basics to a T, like you're mentioning, you should be able to give me extra for functionality to um, to justify the high price that you're giving. I remember a couple of years ago uh, while we were on the, uh, I think on the Tech Travel Geeks podcast, when I said, you know, if you out of your own money, if you had to put down, what's, what's your mental maximum or how much money you would put down to buy a phone? And I'd said, I think it was about 650 and you'd said about 700, roughly, if I remember. Um, yes. because after that point you really felt like I'm just wasting money you know um, and I'm just buying because it's the brand or it's this or the that um, we're firmly in that territory now the post 700 you know even OnePlus has um, you know their device starts at 699 now they're OnePlus 8 so um, if you've got a device that is a grand then you know the fact that it can't do the smartphone basics like you're saying is an even bigger indictment against it you know really really we should be talking about what extra it can do now for example you've got huawei i've got a galaxy uh these both have desktop modes you know it's really cool do i use it often no but i paid the money i'm getting a bit more you know um uh, and similarly with the Huawei's, you know, the kind of uh, camera technology that they're bringing in, you know, um, with the periscopes and the optical zooms and this, that, you know, all of this justifies these higher prices, right? Just making a phone and pricing it up there because that's where everybody else is pricing it. No. One of the best phones, uh, uh, not one of the best phones, uh, one of the most pleasant surprises I had of a phone was the Xiaomi Mi 9T, which I had last year. And... So the, the Mi 8 or 9T? 9T. So the, the, oh, okay, yes, the one with the pop-up camera. Yeah, the one with the pop-up camera, yeah. That was, basic, that was basically the uh, Redmi K20. Do you remember in, in certain markets it was the K20, uh, it, was, it was called, it was badged yes. as the Redmi K20 and so and in the West it was marketed as the 90. Um... Me 90, sorry. Um, and, that, you know, that phone was, what, 300 quid? Yeah. And n- nailed all the smartphone basics without a problem. And, frankly, uh, was better than 
the phone that it replaced, which was a Galaxy Note 9. You know, in the sense that uh, it was speedier. The camera actually I thought was very good. Um, the battery, battery life was very good. Frankly, it was amazing. Um, I really regret having actually sold that phone. Um, I should have kept it. Um, but hey ho, that's life. Um, I mean, yeah, and that, that's available for what, 300 quid. So you're actually getting, there you're getting value for money. Yeah, there you're getting more than what your money is getting. You know, this thousand pound, 1200, 1400 lark. Sorry, mate. No. Yes, but um, essentially the phone industry has become a commodity industry. It's not something that you had a, an exclusive on or it became, it was something that very few did. It's like the car industry. And you could make the same argument. You don't need, uh, you do not need a, um, you don't need a Ferrari or you don't need a Range Rover to go and do your shopping at Tesco. Uh, ultimately, those products will exist. For some people, they were, will be aspirational. That's what they're looking for. Uh, they're trying to create an industry where there is that space and there is a certain number of products that make a lot of profit for those companies or they're being used as a, as a test bed to see what will work in the market or won't. Um, it's just like the car industry. Uh, we've seen this, for example, with Volkswagen doing a very nice sedan or estate or estate car, where as a business they've lost a lot of money on, but they use that as learning for the technologies they use. And then over the next few years, that those trickle down to other models in their range. So I think the mobile phone market is going in that way. Uh, if you look at it culturally in some markets, especially in the Middle East, and I'm sure India is the same, uh, people want to be seen with a thousand pound phone. They don't care about the feature set and what it does. They want to be seen holding that shiny, exclusive coloured device because it gives them status. And ultimately, that's a fundamental part of product marketing. Uh, you and I are very sort of functional in our looking at what a product is, what it should do, and our expectations of it. But other people want to be seen with a thousand pound phone because it means they can afford a thousand pound phone. That's the function of the product. They don't care about the camera if they have coverage when they want to make calls. That's part of the product setup. And because most people on the planet at this point have smartphones in one way or another, that's part of the product marketing. But the lion's share of the products will probably be those Xiaomi Mi 90s or in, the case, in my case, I've got the newer Xiaomi Redmi Note 9S. That's the space where the majority of users will be there. They're the Vauxhall Vectors or the Ford Mondeos of the world. And we live with that. But yes, the press will be all excited about the new technologies and the shiny new uh, iPhones and Pixel 4 XLs and Ultra Pro Plus, whatever other brand. It's, it's, a, it's a space that the mobile industry has moved into from one that both you and I started out with, where was... We were dealing with the basics, the equivalent of the Ford Model T, and we were making the modifications we needed to to make the device do what we wanted it to. Mm. Yeah, I think you're very. I think you're very true, right there. Um, you mentioned the HTC Desire. Was that your first Android phone? <laughs> no, it wasn't. So I was in the situation where, as a poor student in two thousand and nine, um, or someone who's just finishing up at university. Uh, I really, really wanted an Android device, but couldn't afford a, a T-Mobile G1 at the time. 
and T-Mobile UK, which has since become part of EE. Um, T-Mobile UK uh, had the very first pay-as-you-go Android device, which at the time was priced around about £200, which was insane pricing. And it was actually a rebranded uh, Huawei device. It was the T-Mobile Pulse. Okay. And so, so I got this. Uh, the, the reason I got this and I was really excited about Android was that I had, uh, through doing business studies at university, I'd done a feasibility study on the use of Linux in small and medium enterprises. And I had really looked into this Linux thing quite a lot. And Android had just been announced at the time. And I knew that there was something there between Linux and Android. And it's not just the kernel, it's just the whole idea of open source software and it being used and how this would revolutionize an industry. So I really wanted to get on the Android thing early. And that's uh, why my first device was a T-Mobile Pulse. And I was really into Android even before the first G1 came out and was available to purchase because I had been looking at this from from the sort of industry back end whilst Android was still being developed. So, okay, so that's how you got into it with the polls. Okay, me, I... See, that's very interesting, your story, you know. And I'll tell you why. Because... I fell into Android by accident and I've I've got almost the reverse story to you. So to in 2009 I was coming up for a phone upgrade. And I always I it's the contrarian in me. I didn't want to be one of the i sheep that were buying you know everybody because you know the iPhone had been released the previous year and everybody was uh, jumping around, you know, uh, about how great this iPhone was and I was just sat there going oh but the cameras are better there and the screens are better here and whatever so anyway I was always looking around for um, a phone which wasn't an iPhone so when my upgrade time came um, I was still on a f and I hadn't really grasped this difference between feature phone and smartphone I hadn't really got it you know um, and so I remember going into the now dealer departed phones for you and uh, sat there and the, the guy showed me, what is it he showed me? He showed me the Samsung Toco Ultra, which was a uh, touchscreen but with a slider. He showed me a BlackBerry, not the Storm, it was still ones with physical keyboard. Uh, bold, I can't remember. It was one of the Blackberries anyway. And showed me this HTC Hero, right? And... Um, kind of playing around with them in the shop and I thought there's something different about this HTC and this Blackberry and this, I, I don't know I, I quite I don't know I'm, it's uh it seems quite interesting I don't know let, let me decide I'm, I'm going on holiday to India I'll figure out afterwards anyway that holiday to India was my brother-in-law's wedding and it is the most eventful wedding that I'm ever going to remember because on my return back I broke my leg and so, I, oh, wow. yes. And so I, I had an accident in a train. I had uh, ended up staying. I was uh, off work for six months or so. Um, you know, going around, I was actually going around in a Zimmer frame initially. <laughs> they didn't have crutches. <laughs> so I, in India, so I had, had a Zimmer frame. <laughs> uh, so anyway, when I got back, 
I thought, okay, I'm going to do a bit, a bit more research on these phone things. I need to, I, I want to sort this out because I don't want, uh, the one thing I hate is mobile phone companies taking my money unnecessarily. So I didn't want to be on a contract longer than I had to be, you know, because I knew that that would just be profit for them. And so uh, I just said, um, I, I just uh, rang up, I think I was with Orange, which is now EE as well. Um, and I said, I'll have the HTC Hero, please. And it arrived the next day and I was very excited. And then I went online and then I heard Nexus One announced. And I was like, pants, I've just bought <laughs> this, you know, uh, uh, this HTC Hero. Um, and I looked into the Nexus One and then I looked into the HTC Desire. And I was like, man, if only I'd waited a couple of weeks. Um, and because and they were uh, and I was really very, very tempted because I was just sat at home. I just kind of sat there thinking, you know, shall I just return this and get the other one? I didn't in the end. Um, and my HTC Hero was my first smartphone and uh, I really liked it. I liked the roaming aspect of it, although I never actually did put a ROM on that. But, you know, the idea that you could tinker with it and this, that and the other. And then later in that year, because I had been using the, la I had a laptop at the time. This is my sister's laptop, actually. I had a laptop at that time, and that laptop was ba basically dying. It was an old Core Two Duo running Windows uh, Vista. I want to say, yeah. Um, I um, came across this new operating system called Linux. Well, it wasn't a new operating system. It's been obviously been around for a long time, and. Um, it uh, you know breathed a new life into that machine, and I got into the hot. And then I the link started coming into my mind that Android runs this Linux kernel as well, and Linux oh, is an open source platform, and it's based like this, 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 that, and the other, and this, that, and the other. And so that that's where my love affair with Android and Linux uh, kind of comes, uh, kind of comes from. And since then, I. I had HTC Hero. I then had the Nexus S, uh, the the Samsung one, because I, um, I I was thinking of getting a Galaxy S, um, but I thought it doesn't matter. Let me get the Galaxy S. After that, I had a HTC Sensation, and it just kept on growing exponentially, you know. And I think in the year twenty eighteen, I got through I think six devices. I think, you know. Um, the difference between me and you, I suppose, in this regard is that I always, I never had more than two at any one time, um, partly for financial reasons, more than anything else, you know, yes, because you're, 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 you're buying your own devices. Yeah. Because I'm buying my own devices and buying, selling, buying, selling this, etc. You know, sometimes you get a good deal on eBay. Sometimes you get a rubbish deal on eBay, this, that, and the other. Um, I was also very early to the Android tablet game. So I had some of the uh, Honeycomb tablets. Uh, oh, which, which one? Uh, I had the uh, Sony Xperia, uh, Xperia S tablet. Right? I which, remember that one. Which was the one which was like a folded up book. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the idea being that you would hold it like a book, you know. And uh, to be honest, I only got that one because the other one, which is the one that I actually wanted, which was the original Galaxy Tab, wasn't in stock 
in the in Curry's PC world that day. I actually wanted that one, but um, they said, "Oh no, all we've got it, but we the those have sold out. We've got this one." And I went, "Oh, actually, that looks quite cool. Actually, um, I'll you know uh, sign me up." And so I I bought that, and that was my first Android tablet, and I always. Android tablets, I've always thought that they could do so much, but in the end, you didn't want to. Um, <laughs> if, if you know what I mean. It's like, you know, I, I did remember, I remember once writing a uh, an article, um, actually on that Xperia tablet, um, from my, um, well, I was, I was training as a, I was a, as a junior doctor at the time and I had to do some kind of presentation or something. I remember how clunky it was. And I just thought, you know, it'd be so much easier if I just had a laptop. I just did it on my laptop instead. You know, and uh, that has always persisted with me through all the... Because I'm, st- I'm still a sort of believer in Android tablets. I haven't completely lost the faith and given up. You know, I still have one uh, at the moment. But it's very much a... If you need a bigger screen to do something then an Android tablet or an iPad, I would say as well, having had an iPad as well, for for productivity isn't going to help. If you don't... Yes, uh, everything... Uh, the phones have become so good now that you can do most things on your phone and if you can't do it on your phone, you need a laptop to do it. A tablet is just uh, going to be the phone, but a bit bigger. You know, it's not going to add any ex- extra functionality. Yes, so this is something that's been the issue since the beginning with tablets, is that ergonomically they're not great. Ultimately, tablets are consumption devices. You watch media, you read, you play games on it, but it's not something you will use actively unless you're putting it in a laptop case uh, as, a, as a product. And I think that's the, the fundamental issue with them is ergonomically they're not made for content creation. Uh, obviously, there is going to be some people who are happy with an iPad for everything or uh, an Android tablet for everything. But I think that's the way the market played out. Uh, eventually, companies realize this and companies making it. And if you look at the Android tablet market, uh, that is dominated now by Amazon. Uh, Amazon have the fire line of tablets, which are completely... Google this and perform that function, not of content creation, but they're there for consumers to consume. They're there for people to order stuff from Amazon, watch stuff from Amazon Prime Video, Netflix and Disney Plus. They're there for that purpose and they're great at it. But everyone else has realized that how they were selling them as productivity devices is pretty much a moot subject at the moment. No one should be really doing that and they've pulled back from it do you, do, do you want to ring tim cook and tell him that because tim cook seems to think that the ipad pro can still replace your computer can replace your laptop your new computer is not a computer these are apple's um taglines that i've seen on their things you know um even yes, but the, it, because apple is successful at marketing but if we if we look at the analytics data of what people are actually using their ipads for I would be surprised to see if it was used as a normal computer, even after the enormous marketing campaigns. 
and the launch of their incredibly expensive keyboard. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do you follow uh, Ali Abdal's channel uh, on YouTube? He's a, uh, a very bright lad, uh, a guy who went to Cambridge University, then uh, is now a junior doctor um, and set up a million pound uh, YouTube channel in the process. And he regularly reviews different iPads and I, you know, uh, iPhones and Macs and whatever. And he's an avowed Apple fanboy. And he talks about how, you know, his Apple uh, iPad, especially with the uh, stylus, but even before, you know, was, you know, indispensable for him, you know, uh, and he uses it, you know, for work. And I found it very strange how he, he could use it for work because of the patient-sensitive data that we have. But... Um, and, you know, um, so, you know, he obviously seemed to find it. But the reality is, and I agree entirely, I mean, admittedly, it's been a while, admittedly. But I did have a short stint with an iPad and I decided to go the whole hog and get a um, a, a case, uh, a keyboard case. And it was just the, the clunkiest of experiences that within two months, I was like, I, I literally wanted to throw it away. I didn't because I'm not stupid. I gave it to the kids and it lasted for years actually as their uh, uh, YouTube stroke game machine, you know. Um, it survived two trips to India, two trips to, one trip to Saudi Arabia. You know, it, it, you know, it, it got through that. So from, from that point of view, it was, um, it was good as a content creation, but I couldn't get any work done on it. And that has led me for, to, the search for the perfect laptop because I found that if I couldn't do it on my phone, I'd need a laptop to do it. You know, um, what I should have done because I actually remember starting this topic while I was I was still with cool smartphone, um, and you know hopefully the uh, the more of the updated article will come out in um, uh, on Tech Travel Geek soon. Um, I've been through a ridiculous number of devices trying to find the perfect laptop. And had I just ponied up the money and got a decently specced Ultrabook, I would have saved myself a lot of time and hassle. But I didn't. I tried lots of different fixes. I tried an iPad uh, with a keyboard. I tried a, uh, a, um, a Android tablet, you know, with with a keyboard i tried a um what else did i try i tried a windows tablet with a keyboard then i got uh, then i tried an old netbook running linux because that was you know 60 quid and i could get it to run as fast as anything and then oh you know th th then i got a chromebook and then the chromebook problem with chromebooks at least when i was using them was that uh, they were very very heavily dependent on internet signal i know now you can do a lot more because of uh, Android app support and stuff but at the time I had it that was didn't exist and so within the hospital where you can never get any mobile reception it was it was dead to me um etc 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 and then I started getting more and more pernickety because oh I'd get this and it was powerful but not powerful enough for Windows so therefore I would put Linux on it but then there were certain programs and certain apps that I had that I used which um re only worked under Windows uh, and so I always had to keep a Windows partition, then portability, this, that, and the other. Um, 
And in the end, now, 10 years later, after having started that journey, I think I've, I've, I've ended up at a reasonably specked ultra book. <laughs> With the touch screen. True. So um, I'm of the opinion that there is no such thing as the perfect machine. That's true. Um, That's we, true. We all have different needs. We're, it's a very subjective thing. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. all do different things. And depending on, on the context you're in, uh, you will use a machine differently. You will have different needs. So obviously I'm in a privileged situation where I, ha- I can afford to and I do have multiple devices. I use services that enable me to do things in a sort of stateless manner that I can be picking up one device, putting it down and then picking up where I left off elsewhere. And so I use, for example, uh, Amazon tablets, as we were saying earlier, I have pretty much one in every room of the house in different contexts. So I can be watching a a program in one, go through to the other and pick up where I left off. Um, The same with computers. I have uh, two, three Chromebooks. I have a Microsoft Surface Go, the first generation one, as well as my main personal laptop. But when traveling, I will take my work laptop and my uh, Microsoft Surface Go and use them according to my need. So depending on what your context is, one device may be better than another, but most people need to choose the one. And depending on the situation, a Chromebook might be right, a Microsoft Surface Go might be right, a basic £150 Windows laptop might be right. Uh, I think that it's just the same as smartphones. There is no one perfect one. All of our needs are different. Most people will be fine with a £150 laptop at this point. Very true. Um, And again, you know, in the same way that um, we uh, we are not the target demographic, as as in uh, geeky tech geeks, you know, we are not the target demographic for most of the um, uh, companies. Um, For phones, it's also the same with laptops as well. You know, most people are buying desktop replacements or people are just buying a macbook air because they want a macbook and you know how it syncs well with their iphone etc etc um in in the end what i've settled with is i've got two phones uh one for home one for work um work didn't supply me with a phone but i i was quite insistent to myself that i think i need a separate phone number and plan and whatever which i can devote to work and that i can switch off um when you know when it's the weekend and people don't people can't reach me um i have a i had applied for a trust laptop i'm still waiting to receive it in the meantime i bought a lenovo mix uh tablet pc which is basically a surface clone it's like a cheaper surface basically um you know the tablet with the but with the keyboard and the pen come attached and um, that's what I actually use quite a lot. Um, you, I could even argue that that's my perm, that that's my main laptop to an extent because that's where I actually get most of my work done. Um, I've found a, a Samsung tablet with a pen which didn't cost an arm and a leg. So this is the Samsung Galaxy Tab A, eight inches with S Pen, which wasn't released officially in the uk was released in europe was released in um other markets but wasn't officially released in you in the uk um 
and it's basically a big Galaxy Note, you know, with a pop-out S Pen. And I find that actually very, very useful uh, as a portable device for work and for uh, content consumption. Um, and it only cost me about 170, 180 quid, you know, much less than the Galaxy Tab S6 and S5, you know, which are five, 600 quid behemoths um, that are out there. Um, I used to, I, I used to, I do have a desktop, but I never get to use my desktop. So therefore I bought a, uh, as I said, a reasonably priced Ultrabook, a, a, another Lenovo Yoga, partly as a, uh, as a con, uh, consumption device as well. I, I don't like having multiple TVs around the house. I'm not one of these guys that likes that. Uh, probably, maybe that's just me being a control freak parent. I don't know. Um, I kind of want to know what my kids are watching and stuff. Um, and so we've only got the main TV, which is great until I want to watch something which isn't suitable for children, you know. And um, I actually found watching on a laptop is quite good, actually. You know, if you've got a good quality screen and you can get what you want to, it's, you know, this has got Dolby Atmos and everything. It's I'm actually quite impressed. Wish I'd just gone for this in the beginning. <laughs> Yeah. I, it's it, it's a different uh, world nowadays. Uh, we, Candace and I, uh, there's just the two of us in the house. We have one TV in the bedroom for uh, when we want to uh, go to bed and be under the duvet and watch something like Community or some light-hearted stuff. And then we have the, the big TV in the living room. But uh, as I said, I consume content on Amazon Fire tablets quite a lot, whether it's podcasts video uh, from YouTube or, uh, or or shows on various streaming services. So it's 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 a different world. We're lucky we're in a situation where that's uh, possible in an affordable manner because uh, I dread to think about what lockdown would have been like for a lot of the families had there not been this sort of service and connectivity available. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, even, I mean, just going on to lockdown... Um... For a second, you know, I had to increase my uh, house, my household's device quotient so that they could do all the kind of online schooling and video calling uh, uh, that they do. You know, uh, I had to get my daughter a, uh, a laptop so that she could do her online classes. Uh, it was quite funny, actually. I thought to myself, I bought her this, I bought this uh, Asus Vivo book, which technically I had about six years ago. Which I'd, I'd uh, but I'd passed it on, and so I ended up buying the same thing because I knew I knew how they worked, and uh, she's seven years old, and I thought to myself, that's exactly the same age I was when I got my first computer. I was seven, so um, I had to buy one for her. I had to buy one for my other son, uh, who goes to a private school, and so they were being very serious about online schooling. You know, they weren't just kind of giving the odd essay and just do it. They were like proper Zoom meetings, Microsoft team meetings, face-to-face, -face, you know. They, 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 they were doing it very seriously. Um, and so I am lucky that I'm in a position to be able to do that. I'm also lucky in that I have a bit of know-how and I know how to maximise uh, my resources, as it were. So, for example, the Vivo book that I got is very old and on Windows 10 is barely usable. 
but put a light flavor of Linux. I put Lubuntu on it. Works absolutely fine. She yeah, can best, she, dis- the best, best lightweight distro. Yeah, I, I'd say Lubuntu is probably the best lightweight distro. I would say so. Um, I, I haven't gone much lighter because if you go much lighter than that, then you're going into kind of puppy Linux ter- territory and, you know, you look like it looks like you're using something which is from Windows 98 er- era. Uh, the thing with Lubuntu is that it still, lo- it still looks like a modern operating system, even if very traditional with a start menu and all this kind of stuff. Um, uh, and for my son, I uh, managed to get an ex-business laptop, uh, which uh, wasn't very nice in the sense of it wasn't sleek or thin or whatever, but it was a business laptop, so it was specced up to the hilt, you know, and they were selling it as, you know, as soon as, you know, trying to get rid of them because obviously they were uh, deploying new uh, laptops in their department or whatever and so i managed to get a thinkpad with a an i7 from a couple of years ago for about 200 quid you know that's so, really good you know so i was able to although ironically the, the webcam didn't work on it which is really annoying so i asked them for a, well, a, lot, so of them, do, a lot of businesses disable them yeah i mean i tried to re-enable it but i couldn't do it through the um i i, I did a lot of uh uh, fixing around and the fact that it wouldn't work even when I booted up a Linux distro I still couldn't get the webcam to work so there must be a, I thought there's either a hardware switch that's stopping it uh, which is likely yeah um, and I, I'm i still wary when it comes to messing around with internals of I, I was never a hardware guy I was always a software guy do you know what I mean um I I wouldn't be able to I I wouldn't be able to figure it out basically. Um, if I did, where would it be? Do you reckon? Um, it depends. Obviously, thinking end to end, there's probably something in the back of the screen, uh, near the webcam itself, which will be a connection, or there'll be uh something in the connector between the hinge and the motherboard or the main controller in the body of the machine, uh, which will be a connection that will have been physically severed uh, so that the the webcam doesn't work okay all right okay i'm gonna have to uh, uh well, a lot of businesses despite the whole uh, zoom craze still do not uh trust employees with devices with cameras yeah well to be completely honest having known a couple of people who have got uh issued devices and what they get up to on them and I can't. I can't say I'm completely un- unsympathetic. <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, um, speaking of being locked down, um, etc. One of the check out my segue. One of the things that happened just before the lockdown was this beef between US and China, which led to the Huawei being put on the entity list. And Huawei uh, having to now produce, they already produced phones which ran Android without Google Play services, but those were mainly for the Chinese market. Now, those are the only devices that they can sell anywhere. So they can't sell uh, a new Huawei Mate or a new Huawei P series phone um, with Google, Google Play services. They have to, they can still run Android because Android is an open source uh, operating system 
And I understand that you have a Huawei P40 and you are going, you know, commando style. Let's go. You know, you're not going to see you're not sideloading Google Play services or Google apps, or whatever. You're going to try and run this Google less. How's that going? Great. Um, I took the approach that um, there's no no point in trying to shoehorn a service that uh, obviously the manufacturer and Google themselves don't want you running on the device. Just live the life as if you were in the situation where you had to. You didn't have the technical knowledge. You just wanted to use the device as you purchased it. I think little old lady walking into a Carphone warehouse being sold a Huawei P40 and going out, what would they do and how they would they approach it? So I did the same. I used the Huawei app gallery and searched for the most popular apps, installed the ones that were there, and then did a Bing search for how to set up a Huawei P40. And there was a, a guide on how to install the Amazon App Store, which is very simple. If you're already logged into Amazon on the web browser, it's a simple download, and then you log in with your Amazon credentials, and you have access to the same App Store that is available on Fire TV and the Fire Tablet. So as an average consumer, all the services uh, that you expect are available. So whether it's WhatsApp, Instagram, Telegram, Snapchat, Facebook, Facebook Messenger, they're all there. Um, so I'm not seeing this really big issue. If you want YouTube, uh, you just open YouTube in the web browser and it works. If you want to log in with your account, you can. Uh, the email client handles Google accounts or Google's, or Google's G Suite accounts quite happily. Uh, so there's not really a big issue there. Obviously, you mentioned Google Pay. Uh, yes, that won't work on the device. Uh, but Huawei are expected to launch their own payment platform, which is compatible with the contactless system in the UK for point of sale and public transit services. So uh, I don't think this is going to be a very big issue in the long run for Huawei. In the short term, it will be. It will affect their sales and the user experience for people who have certain expectations in the space. But I think in the long run, this is going to be a much bigger issue for Google. Um, and just to go back to, to your intro, you, you mentioned that in the run-up to the lockdown, this has been a trade war that has been quietly escalating for the last three years. Uh, it's nothing new. Uh, Huawei were put on the entity list officially last year, uh, but it did not apply to all U.S. businesses equally, which is very interesting. Uh, and the way you can tell about that now is the fact that uh, Microsoft Office and Microsoft Apps are available in the Huawei App Gallery, Huawei's App Store, which is replacing the Google Play Store uh, for many consumers in Western markets. Uh, there are other Western apps available there. So it's, it's a strange situation where Google have been told to do this. The problem for the Google in the wrong run is that there's going to be close to a billion people globally will be exposed to the fact you don't need a Google Play services phone to do most of what you need to do. And not so much in Western markets, but specifically in Southeast Asia and Africa, that's a big deal because these are people who are maybe approaching their first smartphone or their first premium smartphone and will be quite happily living without Google services. 
Yes, so, you're yeah. right. I think you're right. This is more of a problem. This is one of those classic things of how most trade wars hurt the person who's trying to do the protectionism, if you know what I mean. Well, you no, know. as we were saying earlier when we were discussing politics, um, it's not a, something that's been done by the president of the U.S., uh, obviously, the president of the U.S. got the, got to where he is thanks to vested interests from businesses and companies who have a much shorter-term view of how they would like things done. So, to give you two big companies who would have been involved in this, obviously, uh, you have Apple on the one side, who see Huawei as an enormous threat globally. Uh, their hardware is obviously amazing, but Huawei hardware is really good value for money. On the Tech Travel Geeks, we compared the Huawei P40 with the iPhone 11 side-by-side. Side. Bang for buck in the UK, they're the same price. You can get so much more and such a better device for the Huawei P40. It's incredible. So, obviously, Apple had been egging on this. They were quite happy with it to go ahead. Uh, and also Qualcomm, the makers of the chipsets that go into uh, the majority of smartphones worldwide, apart from Apple and Huawei and the lower-tier devices you're running MediaTek chipsets. Uh, this has really backfired in that uh, suddenly there's less competition in the U.S. market. Uh, that's, in the short term, good for those companies, but in the long term will be bad. But the fact that there's this alignment in, an sort of, uh, in a situation that's going to be harming U.S. businesses in the longer term, in the medium to long term, and I think this is really bad for competition. Uh, with less competition means that the other tech companies have less uh, incentive to innovate and come up with innovative solutions. So we'll just need to see how this uh, plays out. But as an average consumer, to looking at this uh, with what's pre-installed on the devices and how you get access to the devices, if I think about friends and family, they don't care if it doesn't have the latest version of the operating system. Their question is, does it run Instagram? Does it run Snapchat? Can I video call friends and family using Messenger? Exactly. And it's actually very interesting to know, uh, or one thing that I've observed over the years, and it's still uh, around for a long time, is that for, for a lot of people... Um, when they get, say, a Galaxy device or they get a Huawei or, a, uh, in the old days, an HTC, um, they would be going to the app stores of that platform. So they would go to the Galaxy app store and I'd get phone calls from a mate saying, I'm trying to download and install this and I can't find the app. And I'm like, it's on there on the, the store. And he goes, no, no, I'm looking here through the Galaxy store. And, it's, and I'm like, no, the Play store. Oh, oh, okay. Well, what does I need my Google stuff for? You know, and so there are still a, a, a large amount of people who wouldn't realize necessarily or be as attuned to realizing that, you know, Google Play Store and um, the Galaxy App Gallery and the Huawei App Gallery and the Amazon App Store are different entities with which you can, you know, access apps. And so... If you fill those uh, software repos, you know, to use some Linux speak, uh, with the right um, uh, the right apps, then yeah, the end user shouldn't notice anything anything different uh, at all. 
I tried to go Googleless once, and this was when uh, a couple of years ago, I decided that I've never had a Galaxy Note device. I wonder what it's like to have a, a device with a pen. I'd never had one, and um, I was thinking of getting the Galaxy Note Seven, but hey, you know we all know what happened with that. You know, um, a brown person with an exploding phone was not a good look. Um, your, your boarding procedure must have been fun if you're getting on any flights. Yeah, yes, yes. So I, I, I never, so I never ended up going down that road uh, for obvious reasons. Um, I was very disappointed that the next, the Note Five hadn't come out in the UK. I mean, I thought that was a stupid decision of Samsung. They'd made a very good phone with the Galaxy Note Four. People, I know, I know people to this day who are still using their Galaxy Note Fours. They love that device. Um, and so I was really annoyed that the Galaxy Note 5 uh, wasn't launched in the UK. I had seen one. One of my friends had one. And he had got it uh, from Dubai uh, as he was traveling through. Um, so anyway, I thought to myself, okay, well, there's, no, there's not going to be a Galaxy Note 7. They're not going to relaunch it. It'll be next year before we get a Galaxy Note 8. Um... And then that'll be at its, you know, six, seven hundred pound price point or whatever. Um, so I I kind of forgot about it until I found on the Internet a Galaxy Note 5 for sale in the UK. Um, I checked the bands and all that, you know, would it work with the LTE and whatever? And yeah, it would work if, if as long as I had an EE SIM in it. So I thought, OK, then. So I bought it and it was basically an AT&T phone. Somebody had obviously bought this in America and then moved to the UK and was now selling the device on for whatever. And when I was logging in, uh, it was asking me all this kind of AT&T stuff, which I was obviously just ignoring and whatever. And then it came to the Google uh, you know, login screen. And I thought, you know what? Let's not. Let's see what happens if I don't log in with Google. So I didn't log in with Google and I thought, let's see if I can live on the Samsung uh, app store, you know, uh, which was obviously on the you know, device, the Galaxy store. And um, I did pretty well, actually. I did pretty well on that. I mean, you know, I got uh, my email running. I got Facebook going. I got uh, WhatsApp going. I got Messenger going. I was, I was using Outlook, I remember, as an email. Um I logged into Samsung. Uh, I logged into a Samsung account, um, and so I had Samsung uh, uh, storage, cloud storage, which has now been merged with Microsoft OneDrive, ironically. Um, and it was a it was a reasonable experience, you know. I was actually quite um, uh, I was quite surprised at how well it worked, um, and so I thought to myself, you know what. Uh, there is a, it is possible to live in Android without Google. Um, I listened to a, a couple of li- uh, Linux uh, um, podcasts and uh, some of them have guys who are very much against, you know, any kind of proprietary software. They want a free and open source, you know, kind of operating system. You know, they're looking towards the, the Pine phones or, or the Purism or the Librem kind of devices. Um, but, but most of them 
as an actual since those devices haven't come out or whatever what they do is that they get um a one plus normally because they seem to be the easiest uh, in the old days it used to be a nexus and they'd flash lineage os but without any google apps and they would just run it and they would be fine they would get all their uh, apps from f droid um you know um anything that they couldn't get an app for they just go through the web you know like you say for example for youtube for example um and it seems to be a perfectly feasible way to live personally though yes uh, personally though i would say that Huawei are missing a little bit of a trick in that if they price their phones down just a little bit you know um then i think they'd capture is especially in the UK they'd capture a bigger market i think true but um then again let's bear in mind Huawei is a global company they're working globally i think they've done their homework really well and they're looking at the middle east they're looking at india pakistan uh, africa where the aspirational value we were discussing earlier that having a phone which shouts out i have money is more important than the function of it so i think that especially globally they want to keep the price high to keep that aspirational product status and to be fair the hardware is already amazing it justifies the cost yeah um if you're looking for an, a really good camera uh, nowadays whether it's for video or stills you might want to consider a sort of mid-range mirrorless uh, system camera or a Huawei P40 or a P40 Pro just as a camera. Ignore the phone bit. You're not going to use this as your phone. It takes amazing video. It takes amazing uh, pictures. Our chief aperture officer at the Tech Travel Geeks uh, is super excited about this year's range of flagships because they do 4K 60 video. That's the same that he gets out of his 5,000 pounds camera. Yeah. Uh, therefore, for editing, it will satisfy his needs. So. Huawei's hardware is, I would say, second to none. They don't have the marketing or the brand recognition yet, but they're getting there. Yeah, they are definitely getting there. I know that I've seen people who are turning into, I wouldn't say Huawei fanboys or anything like that, but, you know, the brand is getting traction. There are people who are there buying Huawei's, saying that, you know, it's so much better than... Uh, the my iphone i had before and it was oh it's so much cheaper than the galaxy that i got or and then they get hooked into it and then they just buy the next one and the next one and then you know things like that um so uh that's a quick question about the p40 is it 5g capable the p40 in the uk is uh, 5g yes uh, i haven't had the chance to test it yet because of lockdown and we don't have 5g coverage uh, in this postcode but yes, it's capable of 5G. It's the Kirin chipset with the 5G modem built in, unlike the Qualcomm Snapdragon one where it's sort of grafted on sideways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a that was a dick move by Qualcomm, really. Um... <laughs> but well, the, the, the thing is, uh, Huawei have arguably the best hardware on the market at the moment. Uh, they're held back by the lack of Google services. But most users, if they don't listen to prominent YouTubers who haven't bothered doing their homework, uh, will be quite happy running the Huawei App Gallery and having the services they want. Because just the same as in specifically in China, 
people don't care what the operating system is. They just want a phone that has WeChat because that's the walled garden they live in for all their communication and entertainment. In Europe, and specifically in the UK, if they get the Facebook walled garden, so they get Instagram, Facebook, and Messenger, and WhatsApp, they're happy. That's all they, they use on a day-to-day basis. Very true. Very true. It's interesting you said walled garden there, because that is a good segue into probably the last... Uh, uh, point of discussion, which is that um, podcasts have been around for a very long time, as we know. We are recording one as we speak. Joe Rogan has become a very popular podcaster. And there has been some news in which he has is now going to become a Spotify exclusive and will be within Spotify's walled garden um, when it comes to his uh, podcast. Um, your thoughts, Matteo? Um, great move from him. He's got finally got the exit and a nice big chunk of cash to do what he wants to do, to carry on doing what he does, and uh, cash in on it. But I think that we should stop referring to his podcast as a podcast and just refer to it as what it will be. It's a Spotify show. I mean, the whole thing about a podcast is that it's presumes the availability of the content on any client that's capable of picking it up. Whereas with Spotify, you have to use Spotify to get the content. Uh, A podcast should be reachable, whether it's through a web interface, a separate client, uh, a separate uh, player. It's down to the user to choose how they get to it, and they can get to it from multiple places because the XML feed standard, the RSS feed, that the content is uh, distributed in is accessible from wherever. And that's one of the great things about podcasting is that it's accessible. Keyword there uh, is depending on what your situation is, you'll want to reach it accordingly, whether that's using your Amazon Echo or your Google Home device. uh, There will be a way for you to get that content. If it's on Spotify, it's an uh, extra abstraction layer that blocks access from anyone and everyone. I agree with your point. And I think that's very uh, true for starters in the game. Um, I think uh, if, if, however, you already have brand cachet and brand recognition and, I mean, even I listen to Joe Rogan. I mean, you know, um, although I can't normally go through a whole episode, I have to kind of go through bits um, you know, uh, you know, he's in a position where, as you had mentioning off air, you know, he's being spread everywhere and now he can put himself as an exclusive. Whilst if you're a creator starting off there, isn't really going to, you know, he's not going to make you more popular. I suppose the one thing a devil's advocate could say is that Spotify is by far the largest music streaming platform out there. Um, in fact, I, ba- I barely know anyone who doesn't have a Spotify account of some description. So um, here I am. I, I'm, okay, I'm, fine, you're I'm, one then. Okay, but I, I would argue, no, this is not true. Okay. Um, Spotify is definitely not. The biggest music platform in the world is, drumroll, YouTube. Uh, yes, very true, very true. 
because there's the Spotify has a very big either barrier to entry or limitation, which is uh, forced ads and uh, paid for service for more content. Whereas YouTube just has ads and you can access pretty much anything. Yeah, uh, I see what you mean, which which makes the whole YouTube music, Google Play music debacle in my eyes anyway, all the more frustrating, really. I think it's a debacle anyway. I mean, I don't know if you would agree. Yeah, I, I disagree. So I think it's two things. Uh, Google has a legacy service, which is Google Play Music, which I've been subscribing to since the day it was Google Music. Since the very beginning, I was a beta tester. Uh, back in the day and uh, I've been using it before you paid for a subscription uh, when you just uploaded your music to the service and listened to streaming so great service uh, I've been paying for it I upgraded my discounted uh, beta tester account to a family one and Candice uses it uh, as well so I've I've been using this service for a while but what has happened is uh, in, in, in a way, Google are aware of where the industry is going. It's going to be more streaming and media is going to be more centered around video, not just audio. And therefore, they want to offer better value to their partners, the music labels, the music uh, producers and the artists. And by to, to be able to do that, they have to move away from the old model and they also had two separate teams that were handling the partner relationships and the development. They're trying to bring it all into one, uh, consolidate it, and then move forward with bringing us the next generation of access to music going forward. If we think about it, uh, the recent resurgence of services like Amazon's Echo, Google Home, to a much smaller extent, the uh, Apple HomePod, these are all services where people access music when they want and they want easy access to it. We're moving away from the idea that you need an app and you, or you need a web browser to do it. You can have music anywhere, everywhere, when you want it. So Google are preparing for that and it's going to be a transition. It will take time. I think that it's not really a, a big issue. Uh, all services have gone through this. If we think about it, Spotify themselves have gone from a completely subscription-free service to then a paid service, and then having different tiers and different services. Netflix, for example, started off as a DVD rental company and then transitioned to being uh, a streaming company, and now they're a production company as well as a streaming company. Uh, these tech companies have to continuously evolve. They're doing just that, and I think Google's music division is cons is going through that consolidation and change phase which will bring us a, a more consistent youtube music experience whilst keeping a feature set that satisfies the google play music users see the reason i said that it was a debacle was not because i disagree with any word of what you've just said i think you was bang right spot on the money i just feel that they haven't implemented it very well i i also used to use google play music um, I didn't really put up my own, upload my own songs. I used to just, I used to peruse their libraries more than anything else. Um, I then found 
Uh, and then then started using a bit of Spotify. Spotify was weird in the early days where you couldn't just listen to an album. You had to make a playlist of that album and all that sort of jazz. Um, and so I actually ended up on Amazon Music uh, because <clears throat> that was actually the first place where I was actually uh, buying music and, you know, uh, playing music. And then they've obviously launched a, uh, in a, if you're a prime customer, they launched a free to use without ads um, service. And um, I've dilly-dallied with a lot of other ones that are around Deezer, Tidal um, and things like that. And I did use YouTube Music for a while and I did quite like it. And I thought that the algorithm was quite good. But I think that this consolidation that you're talking about now, they should have decided that when YouTube Music was coming out. They should have seen it then and then gone, OK, we're going to have to rebrand or we're going to have to incorporate YouTube into this existing service rather than starting a new service and then trying to amalgamate them messily. I mean, I don't know about Sorry, you. Rashid, I'm going to have to disagree there. Okay, go on. At the, time, at the time, Google Play Music and the Google Music team were operating in a different business. Google had its music service, Google Play Music, and YouTube was a separate entity within the Google holding company, uh, which then became Alphabet, mm-hmm. where they were operating completely independently. They had mm-hmm. two different teams doing different products, they had very little cross-contamination uh, for whatever reason. And that's why they had two separate services that were essentially competing against each other. Yeah, which, uh, which, is never, which, which I don't think was ever a good idea. Well, the, at the time, Google was a great company in giving product teams the freedom to do as they wished and learn as they went. Mm-hmm. And they did a great job. I mean, Google Play Music is a great service that I've, I wouldn't still be subscribing to it almost 10 years later uh, if it weren't a, a really valid product. Uh, so I think that it's, a, it's, it's understandable that it's gone on so long. But now that Google has reorganized as a business, there's Alphabet is now the holding company, and YouTube is now much, much closer embedded into Google, now is the right time to do it. And as we saw in all about Android's uh, I believe it was last week the teams have now merged it's yeah. one engineering team one product yeah. team and one uh, commercial or partner relationship team now is a good time to start merging the products but until then um I, I think that google did a good job of differentiating between the two mm. i mean yes you could get if you really looked for it uh, the video music video to the track you're listening to on google play music uh, and you had the option to buy music indirectly through YouTube. Uh, but now they're putting it all into one. And Google, have will under the YouTube brand, will have a credible competitive product to Spotify, Amazon Music, and Apple Music. Though I think the real target is Spotify. Yeah, yeah, true. I'm, I'm going to give YouTube Music another go. Uh, I'm going to see if it will let me migrate my Google Play music stuff over. Uh, there's supposed to be a one click and it will come over. I'm yet yes, to see it. Yes, that's not going to come for, for months in the UK. At the moment, it's in the US only and only selected accounts. So it's be, it's a phase rollout. They're learning during the process and they're going to be improving it as they go. So it may be that by the time it comes to the UK, it will be a very different experience. So mm. I would say take all the initial reviews and reactions to this 
with a pinch of salt. Mm-hmm. Um, don't assume that what is happening in the US is automatically going to happen in the UK. Uh, the reason I'm saying this is uh, the music industry is a horrible, broken, old, essentially cartel, uh, which still has uh, much stronger boundaries than the most closed off of countries, uh, even within the EU. So Google will need to renegotiate all the licensing terms with each label market by market. So I don't envy their partner relationships team. This is <laughs> the music industry is horrible. And if you're looking for some music to illustrate that, the fun loving criminals have, uh, I believe a track called the biz, uh, or the music industry that sums it up nicely. Okay. Okay. Well, on that uh, musical note, uh, I think, uh, we'll uh, call it a day thank you very much Matteo for coming on to uh, the Atypical Anesthetist podcast um, great thanks for having me imagined yeah, um, we know you're available on Tech Travel Geeks um, because I work with you there as well and um, and you're also available on Twitter uh, Todaleo if I'm correct yes on Twitter and Instagram Leo is the handle Tango Oscar Delta Oscar Lima Echo Oscar. Um, that's uh, uh, how to get in touch. I'm open to having great conversations such as this one. If you want to discuss something with me, just hit me up on social media and we'll take it from there. Cool, excellent. Thanks a lot, Matteo. And that, folks, was the end of a mammoth, uh, almost two hour. Um, uh, atypical anesthetist uh, uh, podcast thank you very much for listening uh, keep your um, keep a close eye on your Spotify feed to see when next uh, episodes come up it's A squared here over and out <laughs>